a few years removed from the groundbreaking Bonnie and Clyde and following on the heels of the revolutionary Easy Rider. The 1970s promised further explorations of challenging and sometimes taboo themes, and a slate of films that spoke to a new audience, one that was more politically and culturally engaged than ever before. The new Hollywood was blooming. Author of Hollywood's Last Golden Age, Politics, Society, and the 70s Film in America, Jonathan Kirshner. Films could become a, a little more ambitious and daring, and this really opened up the opportunity for the new Hollywood, which was a subculture within Hollywood of filmmakers who were influenced by these European and also films in American uh, kind of film history that wanted to make smaller, inward-looking, personal films that were really informed by the times. And, you know, there's a heck of a lot going on. Uh, in 1970, and so all those things together created a window of opportunity for, for special films to peek out. No bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. Love means never having to say you're sorry. What's more boring than a queen doing a Judy Garland imitation? A queen doing a Betty Davis imitation. This isn't a hospital! It's an insane asylum! You want me to hold the chicken, huh? I want you to hold it between your knees. I know General George Armstrong Custer for what he was. And I also know the Indians for what they was. They're all screwed up, so they're screwing up the culture. We didn't make them feel old-fashioned like the kids make us feel old-fashioned. That's enough. For lovers of meaningful cinema, the 70s are generally a romanticized period during which some of the greatest and most enduring films were produced. But for every mash, or five easy pieces, there are easily five other movies that were either under-the-radar gems, or let's be honest, over-the-top embarrassments. We're opening this series on the first year of that decade. To assist us in this effort, we've interviewed hundreds of subjects, from the creative forces who helped to bring each film to the screen, to the critics and authors who are still debating their merits. We begin on a decidedly exploitative note, a film that brought us bikers and Nazis, with a little Colonel Sanders thrown in for good measure. The shocking scenes you're about to see are not suggested for the weak or immature. If you cannot take it, we advise you to now patronize a concession stand or look away from the screen during this preview of Hell's Bloody Devils. Hell's Bloody Devils are members of a wild cycle gang, always looking for trouble. They're rougher, tougher, and meaner than all the others as they zoom their motorcycles towards the most violent and sadistic acts. Hell's Bloody Devils is the frightening story of the attempted takeover of the USA by a mad political group. Using the meanest motorcycle riders they can find to rape and pillage their way into power, find out all about the secret criminal society that uses violent motorcycle gangs to do their dirty work. No one is safe from their cruel and violent plans. Oh, an Al Adamson special, yes. <laughs> that movie, I think, 
it wasn't released. I think it had to escape. Producer-director Al Adamson was born into filmmaking. His parents both worked on the B-movie side of the industry. Adamson not only followed in their footsteps, he practically reveled in taking that B and tossing it as far down the alphabet as it could go. Drive-ins were invented for filmmakers like Adamson. Hell's Bloody Devils was fashioned from a film he had already shot called The Fakers. Director of Blood and Flesh, the real life and ghastly death of Al Adamson, David Gregory. It was a spy thriller originally, and that film was completed, and they tried to sell it to television at the time, and there were no takers. So, so basically the film was shelved uh, until the biker film phenomenon started and so they went back and actually shot new footage of bikers and actually inserted a biker subplot into this movie the fakers which was a very a very different film from a biker movie originally but it had a subplot about uh, counterfeit money being used to refinance the nazi party and so they decided to make the bikers a gang of nazis and so they were able to somehow make a connection between, you know, the, the bad guys who were Nazis and the biker gang who were also wearing swastikas and doing nasty things. Author of Schlockorama, the films of Al Adamson, David Kano. With the B-movies, what they used to do is they would hire real biker gangs to do the biker films because you didn't have to hire a bunch of extras and get costumes and all of that. And basically, if you just paid their gas and fed them, you know, gave them beer or whatever, they would do the movies. Actor John Gabriel. I mean, it, it only cost about $150,000. I think they lost every penny. When you're in Hollywood and you're, you're hunting around for a job, uh, it, it, it's very difficult to turn down a, a starring role in an independent movie. I, I grabbed it. I'm not sorry I did. I had, a, I had a wonderful time. Laszlo Kovacs, he, he was involved in the cinematography. What, what stage did he come in? So I believe he was involved in The Fakers, uh, the, the original film. And by the time they went back to shoot Hell's Bloody Devils, Laszlo had, had moved on. Yeah, and Laszlo went on to Easy Rider. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so when Hell's Bloody Devils came out in the trailer, it says, from the man who shot Easy Rider. You know, <laughs> even though he didn't shoot any of the biker stuff, he just shot the James Bond type stuff. And when I was watching it the other week, <laughs> I was particularly delighted when out of the blue, Colonel Sanders pops up. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. And this is one of the oldest stories in, in Al folklore, you know, that everybody probably learns pretty quickly. Al loved Kentucky Fried Chicken, and it was a cheap way to feed his crew. And But Al always wanted to get things cheaper than cheap so he decided to put colonel sanders in the movie for promotion uh for kfc and he has you know the kfc bucket uh is in the film and a whole scene takes place in kfc so in return uh they got free kentucky fried chicken to feed the cast and crew there's so many crazy stories about what happened on al adamson movies there's all kinds of nutty things that happen when you have no money and you're flying by the seat of your pants prior to hell's bloody devils what what would be the one movie of of al adamson's that you'd most recommend well obviously satan sadist because that's kind of like what what launched everything that's kind of what 
launched him and the company that him and producer Sam Sherman had um, independent international pictures. Satan sadists are not a pack of imitation angels. They're modern rebels warped by the generation gap and turned on to everything by the torrid temple of the strange age we're living in. You know, the two big movies that everyone will always remember from them are Satan Sadis and Dracula versus Frankenstein. Satan Sadis was kind of like what launched them into business in the summer of 69. And, and then a lot of movies he was working on and bits and pieces started to come out. Like in Horror of the Blood Monsters was one of them. Hell's Bloody Devils was one of them. And, you know, these were movies that he was working on in bits and pieces over the years that um, – he was never able to finish. So, you know, some of it would be shot one year, some of it would be shot another year and you would see all the continuity, you know, like, like the hair changing and, you know, <laughs> you, you could tell that they were shot during different periods. Blood of ghastly horror is a really funny one in that regard where you can definitely see what was shot in 65, what was shot in 67, what was shot in 71. Okay. And then, and as you may or may not know, you know, Dracula versus Frankenstein was two totally different films that were, kind of mashed together. Well, I, I shouldn't say two totally different films. It was originally a whole different film, and then they added Dracula and Frankenstein. A doctor who serves the dead. A dead man who controls the doctor and a living creature horribly created from the mangled corpses of their victims. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Was he happy with with the wheelhouse he was playing in? I mean, with the, did he have loftier ambitions or was he happy just exactly where he was? <clears throat> he, he always wished later that he had a decent budget just once to show that he could actually, you know, do something with better production values and, uh, and, and you know, not, not so low budget. Um, but, uh, but he never got that. So what what he was able to do was complete a film with very limited resources. That was his skill. In many ways, it's more about the purity of cinema. Even if you're talking about something like Hell's Bloody Devils, it's the purity of the excitement about just making a movie, about putting yeah. a band together and, and getting something done on film. Very much so. Very much yeah. so. He knew that like he wasn't making you know great movies, but he wasn't like ashamed of it or anything like that. He was kind of more like, you know, a lot of the bad movie people, first of all, they're amazed that anybody knows who they are. So when people started seeking them out, they're like, you've seen these movies? Like, they, they can't believe that. Throughout the years, a loyal group of cult movie followers did remember Al Adamson. He would come face to face with their giddy enthusiasm on the convention circuit. But even those who didn't know Adamson from his reputation as a cult movie director would soon associate his name with a far more ghoulish form of infamy. So tell me a little bit about the latter part of his life. His wife passed. She passed in 1992, but he got out of the, the movie business in the early 80s because the driving market uh, had uh, ceased to be, basically. He didn't have... It was too much hard work to actually make a living from making movies. And he did do quite well. I mean, he was, he was quite a shrewd business person. He invested the money that he did make in, in real estate and, and other business ventures. He had a barbecue restaurant in Hollywood for a while. He did quite well in the end. But then Regina passed away and she was kind of his life. And uh, so after that, he was a little bit lost. 
but then he moved to his property in Palm Springs or, or Indio, California, which is just outside of Palm Springs. And he lived there with a contractor uh, called Fred Fulford, who was basically there to do up the house. And he kind of became our buddy, you know, and, and, um, and, and they would, you know, hang out together. And at the same time, they had this, according to Fulford, they had this agreement where basically once the house was done, they'd sell it and they'd split it. But uh, Al started to figure out that um, that Fred was stealing from him and was right forging checks and charging stuff that he wasn't authorized to charge and stuff like that, and um, and was going to the last anyone heard from Al directly. He was going to confront Fred about this, and then he disappeared. The shocking scenes you're about to see are not suggested for the weak or immature. It's likely that Adamson did confront Fulford about the charges on his credit card. And following that confrontation, it is believed that Fulford bludgeoned Adamson to death and buried his remains under 42 inches of cement, which he laid in the space that was once occupied by Adamson's indoor jacuzzi. It took weeks before the authorities uncovered Adamson's remains, but after they did, Fulford was put on trial for his murder and sentenced to 25 years to life. I remember my neighbor, knowing that I was a horror film fan, just shouting up to me and saying, hey Dave, did you hear that the director of Five Bloody Graves has been found in a bloody grave? It was that thing where he's like, he'd obviously read a headline which said, director of Five Bloody Graves found in a bloody grave. Oh, isn't that funny? And then it's like, no, that's not funny at all. That's, that's, really, that's really grim. You know, when that when when it happened, I remember thinking that was particularly distasteful and particularly the way the media perceives horror is that basically, you know, once you play with fire, then, then mm. basically you get burnt, you know. That, so that was kind of the inference from these these lurid headlines, whereas, whereas obviously they're, they're way more tasteless than any film that Al Adamson made. Uh, you know, the way that the mainstream media handles something like this, that they could just dismiss this person in favor of, an almost amusing, lurid headline. That's so typical of the media and the way they perceive horror films and people who watch them and people who make them. Aside from the John Wayne feature The Green Berets in 1968, which many veterans found laughable at best, there's a common perception that Hollywood failed to deal with the Vietnam War until the latter part of the 1970s. But as you'll hear throughout the course of this series, there were a number of films that dealt with the Vietnam War in 1970. Not as it was manifested on the battlefield, but on the home front. The first of these films was released on January 2nd, a little movie called Jenny. Directed by George Bloomfield, and starring Alan Alda and Marlo Thomas in her first starring role in a feature film. Jenny tells the story of a young woman who becomes pregnant by a man who abandons her. She soon encounters another man, a fledgling filmmaker named Dell, played by Alan Alda. She agrees to marry Dell, who is desperate to wed the mother-to-be just so he can avoid the draft. This slight but agreeable film plays like a typical romance in reverse, as we follow the path of their relationship from marriage to something resembling true affection. I, just, I don't see why my personal freedom should be taken away from me. Just, I mean, 
mean, for something I don't even believe in. Well, did you tell him that? Who? Tell who? I don't know. To who, whoever it is that speaks on behalf of the army. No, you see, they're they're only exempting married men with children, or at least married men with children on the way. I think we've got to know each other pretty well. You know, without any sentimentality or or or, or any. Well, I mean, just Jenny, will you marry me? The film may be slight, but it does have its charms, and the performances project a pleasant tone of affability and sweetness. Vincent Gardenia is given one of the film's most memorable scenes. Gardenia plays Jenny's dentist father. Early in the film, Jenny brings her fiancé to her parents' home to meet them for the first time. Her father promptly pulls Alda's character by his side as he boasts about his strange collection of rare teeth, which he proudly displays behind glass. This one here, the small one, the little one, Jenny's first tooth. Oh, really? <laughs> That's a nice memento. Oh, yes. Yeah. Very dear to me. Oh, oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure. I have my lab down in the basement. Oh, yes? After dinner, you and I go down. Oh, thank you. That would be very nice. I would, uh, I'd certainly, uh, I'd, I'd, uh... I have teeth going back over a hundred years. Charles? Well, that's certainly a historical, uh, collection. Charles? Yes? As you watch the film, you'd have every reason to think that this moderately unique romantic comedy would have had an unremarkable path to the screen. You'd be mistaken. The script is credited to Canadian filmmaker Martin Lavitt, but the story credit goes to Diana Gould. In actuality, Gould originated the screenplay while attending classes at USC, where one of her instructors was none other than Francis Ford Coppola. It was like no role model for me. It's hard to remember what it was like before the women's movement. But I wrote that first script just thinking that it would be a calling card. And this was 1967. There was a magazine at the time called Ramparts. It was a left-wing magazine. And in the back, they had classified ads. And there was an ad for somebody who was draft eligible, who was advertising for a, a woman with children so you could get married and get a deferment. I read that ad and I thought, that's a great idea for a movie. I did nothing that last quarter of film school but write that script. After I graduated, I rewrote it a couple of times. I gave it to this guy that I was dating at the time who was a screenwriter so that he would give me notes. And instead of giving me notes, he gave it to his agent and his agent bought it. I hadn't even shown it to anybody, and it and it was bought. Wow! And and I I was very young. I mean, it was just out of college, and it was a lot of money. But he didn't pay for it. And then he turned around and he sold it. Uh, and it turns out that he was Marlo Thomas's agent, and he knew that Marlo Thomas wanted to make uh, go into movies. She was a television star at the time. And he bought it for her, but he never mentioned that part to me. 
so it turns out that uh, ABC was uh, had just formed ABC Palomar to make features. So there was a a period of time where it was kind of in limbo, where my agent, I had an agent by that time, my agent said it was available and had not been paid for, and ABC felt that they owned it, and no money had exchanged hands. Mm. So Barry Diller at that time uh, worked for ABC. He was, uh, you know, like a development executive for ABC. And I was advised not to talk to him because um, he was he was known to be very persuasive and my agent was now shopping the script and they were saying, no, you can't shop the script. We own it. So Barry Diller called and I said, well, I'm not supposed to talk to you. Uh, and he said, well, look, I'm, I'm going to New York. Why don't you come with me and we can talk on the plane and um, we'll, we'll pay for you to, to be in New York. And I said, can I stay at the plaza? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, sure. They flew me to New York. They picked me up at the airport in a limousine. They took me to the plaza. And um, meanwhile, my agent had been shopping the script. So Cass Elliott wanted to do it. And wow. Liza Minnelli wanted to do it. And Tony Bill, who was at that time an actor, uh, was just about to, he wanted to be a producer. And Norman Lear was bankrolling him. So Tony Bill took me to lunch in New York with Norman Lear, and they were talking about what they would do with the script. And then Tony Bill introduced me to Liza Minnelli, who came to my hotel room. I had a meeting with the ABC people, and I, you know they were telling me, "Well, we're, no, it's not going to be a television movie. It's going to be a feature. We really want to make good features. We want to make good movies." And I said, "Well, I, I've heard that you uh, you're doing this for Marla Thomas," and they said, "Oh no, we have no no plans to uh, n- no connection with Marla Thomas." So it was the, the path of least resistance. They added some money to the deal. And I said, yes, okay, you, you know, and then I got paid, and then I was flying home, and I read in the trades, Marlo Thomas signed to do her first feature. Then what my deal was, was X amount for the screenplay, and then seven times X for seven weeks of rewrites uh, to do with the director. So Marla Thomas had very was very ambitious for this movie, and it was her first movie, and she took it very seriously, and she wanted a foreign director. I know it was submitted to Agnes Varda, who was in Hollywood at that time, because Jacques Denis was making Model Shop. Somehow it, it was settled that George Bloomfield would be the director. So he is giving me notes, and I'm trying to rewrite the script according to his notes and his notes just make no sense to me at all it was not the movie that I had written because the the script script that I had written which was at that time called did you hear about Jenny Shapiro not the greatest title I admit but uh, oh and I also I had an introduction at the time to Pauline Kael who was the movie critic of the New Yorker at the time 
I had an introduction to her, and I went to see her at her apartment, and I told her about the movie, and she said, oh, not more of this Jewish bilge. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like Polly Kale, yes. So so one Sunday, I'm reading the New York Times while I'm having breakfast, um, and it was the Sunday that the Beatles' White Album had just come out. When, and they said the song Julia has particular resonance when you realize that Julia was John Lennon's mother's name. The script, did you hear about Jenny Shapiro? It was about a girl who was completely obsessed with movies, who lives in this fantasy world. This guy asks her to marry him. And um, she's so, you know, yes, yes. Uh, and mostly because to get away from her mother, because she's living at home and her parents are very oppressive and particularly her mother. It was a very antagonistic relationship, which at the time was something that I had to write about because, as I said, I was a very unhappy teenager and I had a very difficult relationship with my mother. So the story really, as far as I was concerned, was a story about this girl's liberation from her mother's opinion of her. The director was turning it into a story about this guy. Mm-hmm. So I went over to the director's house on a Sunday and I, I told him about this review of, of the song Julia and I told him what my idea of that the movie was that this is a story about this girl and her mother. But I was crying when I was talking to him. And the next day, I show up for work, and I got fired. And I got fired for being uh, too close to the script. All of these decisions run so counter to to what I I think makes practical sense. You want someone who writes from deep personal investment. uh, And and that's something that they fired you for. That's right. That's Hmm. right. And uh, not only fired me, but barred me from the set because they they thought I would make trouble if I went on the set. Mm. When the movie came out, I went to see it, and I I I couldn't stand it. I I, I couldn't sit through it. Uh, I just it was just it was so painful because they had changed everything. They kept a couple of locations. Mm. The the movie was unrecognizable to me. The clock begins on the next release of that year. January 9th welcomed a sweaty little southern fried crime drama called Tick, Tick, Tick. A film that asked the question, What happens in a southern town when law and order is in the hands of a black man? Down in Calusa... White folks say Jim Price doesn't know his place, but he does. It's behind the sheriff's badge. I have to do my own job, Mr. Little. I don't want anybody to do it for me. Author of Frederick March, a consummate actor, Charles Tranberg. Uh, Just to give a little background on it, the movie explores uh, the racial violence in a small southern town where a newly elected black sheriff was played by uh, Jim Brown. His authority is resisted when he arrests the son of a prominent white businessman. 
who kills a child while drunk driving. That nigger's got a white man locked up in jail. Give me the keys to my son's cell. Am I supposed to release that boy to them? Brown forms this alliance with the, the retiring sheriff, played by George Kennedy. What are we sitting here talking to him for, Frank? Let's go in there and take him. Well, I hope you don't do that, Mr. Braddock. If you do, I'll have to shoot you. And if he misses, I won't. The film also starred acclaimed Academy Award-winning actor Frederick March in what would prove to be his penultimate role. March plays um, a long-serving, kind of wily mayor of, a, of the town, who, during the course of the film, kind of re-examines some of his own racial attitudes and who wants at all costs to prevent federal troops having to assert order in his town. When you hit a wall you think you can't climb over, dig under or go through, you come to me. Don't go picking up that phone to call Washington or the NAACP. If you hit a snag, come to me with it first. Might be I can get it unsnagged for you. What if you can't, Mayor? Well, all I'm asking you to do is give me a chance to try. Is that asking too much? You weren't asking, Mary. You were telling. Well, hell, I'm used to telling. I ain't used to asking. He liked the script and thought he could have a lot of fun with that character. He's kind of a cantankerous mirror, not one-note stereotype of the old-fashioned kind of flowery southern politician. I think his character has prejudice, certainly, but he also understands that a new era has arrived in the South. And while he won't and doesn't really embrace it wholeheartedly, he, he's not going to stand up against it. One of the best scenes in the picture is where he talks with and not down to his black servant of many years. Mm-hmm. It's a warm, it's a funny, and it's a poignant scene. Pretty flag. Don't try to snow me. You think you've been snowing me for years. You've had your ear to my keyhole for so long, I'm surprised it's not cauliflower. Year in and year out, you've listened to everything that's been said in this room, and then passed the you've gotten information on to every black man, woman, and child in Calusa County. All right? Oh, come on, Homer. I know you and I know your people. In this county, you've always told white people what they want to hear, and then gone off and laughed at them behind their backs. So tell me what I want to hear now. You can laugh later. All right, Mayor. But this time, what you want to hear is the truth. I do what I can for the cause. Uh-huh. We're finally coming to understand one another. Oh, I think we've always kind of understood one another, Mayor. Assistant Director, Michael S. Glick. I don't know if you have any memories of your work as an assistant director on the movie Tick, Tick, Tick. Oh, God, yes. In Calusa, California. Absolutely. I remember that with Jim Brown. He was a tough guy. Uh, he had a... Uh, an apartment or, a, you know, I guess a hotel, a, a motel room right next to mine. And then for the first, about a week or so, you know, I, we, I would give him his call and everything, and he would really be pretty surly. So finally one day I said, you know, I said how am I going to get to this guy? 
and I looked up to him, and he's a giant of a guy, and I'm looking up to him, and I said, you know, I said, Jim, and I looked right in the eye, I said, if you ever hit me and I find out about it, I'm going to be very unhappy. <laughs> and he laughed. I said, okay, let's break the ice. And I said, this is your car, this is your driver, uh, I'll give you your call, you know, your other time is on your own. He was terrific, you know, when you broke the ice. I'm the sheriff. Not the white sheriff, not the black sheriff, not the soul sheriff, but the sheriff. In the mid-1960s, Cleveland Browns running back Jim Brown parlayed his standing as one of the greatest professional football players of all time to a career on the big screen. After his second film, 1967's The Dirty Dozen, hit pay dirt at the box office, he was signed by MGM to a multi-picture deal, frequently earning an above-the-title credit and breaking taboos with his on-screen betting of white actresses Raquel Welch and Jacqueline Bisset. As a movie star, Brown exuded raw masculinity and overt sexuality. This stood in stark contrast to the other major black superstar of the moment, Sidney Poitier. In Tick, 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 Brown was well cast as Jimmy Price, the newly appointed sheriff of a racist southern town. And while the performances of Brown and the other principal cast members are worthy, the film is guilty of pulling the punches promised by its premise. It's not nearly as visceral as it could have been, especially given the combustible setting and the considerable pedigree of its makers. The director is a man named Ralph Nelson. Ralph Nelson really isn't a director who's well-known today, but he also directed Sidney Poitier and Cliff Robertson to Best Actor Oscars uh, for Lilies in the Field and uh, Charlie, respectively. It was written by a man named James Lee Barrett, I believe. Yeah. And he was, who, was a man who was born and lived in the South, so he knew firsthand the, the um, racial problems of the region. And later, he adapted the film of In the Heat of the Night into a television series that starred Carol O'Connor. I think he did a fair job with the script, but I think the the strengths of the film are in the performances. Baby, you gotta look at the bright side of things, you know. Just think about it. For the first time in history, people have a sheriff they can call a boy. In the 1960s, Roger Corman brought Edgar Allan Poe to American International Pictures, a company for which he had quickly become a most valuable player. The vast majority of these films, House of Usher, The Raven, Pit and the Pendulum, The Mask of the Red Death, and others, were produced and directed by Corman and starred Vincent Price. So popular were these films the Corman even brought another film to the screen, which was credited as part of this ongoing Poe series, The Haunted Palace. But in fact, that film actually had nothing to do with Poe. It was based on the novella, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, 
by H.P. Lovecraft. Corman returned to Lovecraft by the end of the decade, and this time, the studio was prepared to give Lovecraft his full credit. The nights are darker. And night is when it happens in The Dunwich Horror. The Dunwich Horror was first published in 1929, and it went on to become one of Lovecraft's most popular works. Its small-town setting and fantastical scenarios also make it one of the most cinematic. The film tells the story of the Waitley family, a sinister and elusive clan that lives in the shadows among the town folk of Dunwich, Massachusetts. The son, Wilbur, is desperate to get his hands on an ancient book called the Necronomicon in the hopes of opening a portal to the Old Ones, more specifically, his demon father. Not only will Wilbur need the book to perform this ritual, but he will also require a virginal sacrifice, which he finds in the form of university co-ed Nancy Wagner. During the course of the film, as Nancy is drawn more intently into the hypnotic web of Wilbur and his family, Dr. Henry Armitage desperately races against time to not only stop her ritual sacrifice, but also to save civilization from the conquest of unspeakable evil. Founders of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, Andrew Lehman and Sean Branny. One of the sort of ongoing themes in a lot of Lovecraftian stories is that, you know, there is something behind reality that most people don't know and will never understand. But Lovecraft's work, too, has a fun kind of plausibility to it. Right. If you, if you want to get into Tolkien and, or, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever, you know, you just got to buy into a world with dragons and orcs and elves and, and, and fully leave your current world behind and, and, and check into a new, a new reality. But the Lovecraft world really is our world, maybe, maybe how it was 80, 90 years ago, but it's, it's the real world. But as Andrew's saying, just, just beyond the boundaries of your perception, there's a whole bunch of other secret things going on. That is interesting um, that you mentioned that he's kind of uh, exploring the, the underside or the, the kind of secret societies that are in plain sight. Because right. when we are covering these movies of the 70s, I mean, we're looking at the culture at the time, and it was really the first time culturally when we felt <clears throat> we're being lied to. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, and I think definitely we still live in, <laughs> in that <laughs> mindset now. So that's okay. fascinating. The film version of the Dunwich Horror strays considerably from the original text written by Lovecraft. Several of these changes were implemented as a means of capitalizing on another hit film of the time. Were they making a conscious choice to kind of stray away from the classic Gothic style in this movie and go more towards the Rosemary's Baby side? Yeah, that was absolutely the precy right there. You just said it. You know, that was, that was the conversation. Writer, producer, and film historian Steve Haberman. You know, let's, let's try to make it less like, you know, the Poe films, because there'd been already eight Poe films from Corman and, you know, a couple of imitations like Die, Monster, Die and uh, stuff like that. And, um, and Cor you know, Corman wanted to always push the envelope uh, and he wanted to find a, 
a Lovecraft style, perhaps, you know, something that, that would be different than the Poe films, as Lovecraft is different from Poe. And uh, and also, as you said, Rosemary's Baby was an enormous hit in 1968, you know? I mean, a, a horror film from a big studio, from Paramount, directed by, you know, a young genius, Roman Polanski, and... Uh, you know, based on a very disturbing piece of contemporary literature, and it made a fortune. So they they wanted to hook onto that as well. It's interesting to me that the kind of the incarnations that Dunwich went went through before it was actually put into production. I, I think originally it might have been helmed by Mario Bava. Yeah. Uh, with well, the, mm. yeah. That they were they were thinking of making a, a Bava movie out of it in uh, the mid '60s. And that was to star Boris Karloff, who really liked Bava when they made Black Sabbath together. And Christopher Lee, who had also worked for Bava in Whip in the Body and um, Hercules in the Haunted World. And, uh, yeah, it was going to be called Scarlet Friday, and Bava was going to do it, but Bava was having a rough time at the time. You know, first of all, he had made a dreadful comedy for AIP called Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs. And uh, Vincent Price said he'd never work with him again. And Baba, I think, was having a nervous breakdown at the time, too. So that thing went away. That would have been very yeah. interesting, though. But Corman took it, I think, more seriously. If it, not that Baba didn't take his material seriously, but, you know, Corman is a very serious, very intellectual guy. And he let Daniel Haller, who was his production designer, very talented young production designer, direct it. And he had already directed a, a, another Lovecraft film, not for Corman, but for AIP, called in this country it was called Die Monster Die, and Daniel Haller doesn't really have a consistent worldview like Corman, but he has Corman's craft because he was the production designer. They they spent the nights together on the sets of House of Usher, which was shot in 15 days, which is remarkable for the richness mm. of that film, and. Um, they spent the nights on the set that was designed and built by Haller to block out how to shoot the next day. You know, what would Hitchcock do? What would Bergman do, you know? And uh, figure out the moving camera and, and what to put in front to emphasize the moves and things like that. So he was very, very good visually. And that comes across uh, in Die, Monster, Die, but it comes across even more so in the Dunwich Horror. Because it has a kind of a, a kind of a trippy, hallucinogenic, almost drug-induced feeling to it, with flashbacks that are you know that are desaturated with color and the point of view of of mad characters that are solarized, or the moving point of view of the invisible monster in the end. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity, and Daniel Haller really grabs it and runs with it, and it's uh, it's quite memorable that way. The Dunwich Horror is especially noteworthy for the talent involved. It marked one of the final performances from veteran actor Ed Bagley. He passed away only a few months after the film's release. Let me put it this way, Doctor. The legend of the Necronomicon has it that long ago the Earth was inhabited by a species from another dimension. With certain chants from the book, coupled with ancient rites and sacrifices... This race, the old ones, can be brought back. You know, Ed Bagley had won an Academy Award and a Tony and so on. He's still, to especially horror uh, fans, pretty unknown. And so he becomes Professor Armitage for that movie. The film also features the first official credit 
for co-screenwriter Curtis Hansen, the talented writer-director who would later find great acclaim with films including The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, L.A. Confidential, and Eight Mile. They, they took the events and sort of spread them out and, again, made them naturalistic, made them explainable and, and much more you know, uh, believable in, in, in a real-world context. And, and I thought that, I know it went through three, if not four writers, just for Corman, and I think it, it ended up, Curtis Hansen did the final draft, doing, you know, a very, very well-structured uh, and, 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 and skillful uh, presentation of the Lovecraft story of the Dunwich Horror in, in feature-length context. For the character of Nancy Wagner, the young woman who becomes Wilbur's prey for sacrifice, Sandra D was cast against her typically good girl type. She even appears topless in the film. Do you remember what we talked about this morning? Yes. When you asked me that question about sex? Yes. I lied. I know. In the book, the lead character of Wilbur is a monstrosity both in psychological and physical form. The filmmaker strayed from this conception when they cast a young Dean Stockwell. And they placed the girl's virginal body upon the altar, naked to the elements, and their black robes blending into the night. They lighted candles and gathered round to observe and to relish her nakedness. And then they waited. They waited for the moment when she would allow the power of darkness to enter. The moment when the gate would open and the old ones would come through. Interestingly, Stockwell would later star as Dr. Henry Armitage in the remake of The Dunwich Horror, which was produced as a TV movie in 2009. It's easy to see why when you adapt it for a movie, you want to turn Wilbur into a charismatic lead and put Sandra Dee in it and... But those things are very much not like the original story. Most Lovecraft fans who know the original story, I think one of the most silly things about the movie is the changes to the Wilbur Waitley character and having it be, you know, five foot two Dean Stockwell with his mustache. You know, when you know the story, you know that that's not what Wilbur's supposed to be like at all. So I think that's part of what makes the movie seem especially goofy to, to, to fans of the original story. Whatever your feelings toward the film as a whole, many of its parts are quite accomplished, including the memorable score from Les Baxter, the evocative imagery designed by Daniel Haller and his team, and the overall feel of the film that makes it relevant to the time in which it was made. I mean, Lovecraft would have been horrified by the whole hippie movement and stuff like that, but You know, Daniel Haller said, we were hippies making this movie in Mendocino, which was hippie central on the, you know, northern California coast. And yet the the kind of body painted naked young people running around terrorizing Sandra Dee in the movie represent, many people get this wrong, they think they're representing the, the old ones, the gods, you know, that's ridiculous. No, they're representing the cult that worshiped the old ones. So really, I mean, in many ways, Dunwich Horror is an anti-hippie film. The Dunwich Horror is a divisive film. Some feel its close ties to the time in which it was produced 
leave it feeling irrevocably dated, and they consider it a disservice to Lovecraft's initial intent. But others feel the film is an overlooked gem of contemporary gothic horror. They actually do a thing sometimes called the Dunwich Horror Picture Show, where it'll be, you know, a midnight movie, and people go watch it in order to make fun of it in a loving kind of way. <laughs> it's successful on a lot of levels. First of all, visually it's terrific. You know, the, the locations, um, the kind of uh, uh, almost avant-garde use of, like, solarized images, and um, so I admire yeah. that. So I like, the, I like the way it looks, I like the casting, I like the screenplay, I think Les Baxter's score is terrific. Um, I like the time period. I think it's very interesting that they made this movie in the late 60s when Lovecraft was kind of a countercultural hero. And uh, it's just there's a lot of good things about that movie. If there was any doubt that Sidney Lumet was one of America's finest directors from his early films like Twelve Angry Men, The Pawnbroker, and Long Day's Journey Into Night, then his legendary output in the 1970s made it an undeniable fact. To a large degree, Lumet's films reflected the very best of the cinema from this period, especially his work on Serpico. I'm a mock man in this department for what? Dog Day Afternoon. Attica! 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 And Network. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it! But while these works remain as beloved and relevant as ever, his first film from that decade, released on January 14th, represented a rare misstep. Last of the Mobile Hotshots. Tennessee Williams wrote it. Gore Vidal, author of Myra Breckenridge, adapted it for the screen. Well, if I get you up on the roof, which I'll try to do, you gonna come down pregnant, or you ain't coming down at all. Ain't gonna be no child murder. Well, I'm planning to go downstairs and call to the police. James Coburn, Lynn Redgrave, Robert Hooks. It seemed like a no-brainer. But the ominous fate of the film could have been predicted from the start. The Last of the Mobile Hotshots is based upon the play titled The Seven Descents of Myrtle. The play opened on stage in May of 1968. It received a slew of foul reviews upon its opening. Many critics felt the play represented a pale retread of the colorful tropes Williams had perfected in earlier works. Featuring a cast led by acclaimed actress Estelle Parsons, the play ran for only 29 performances. But by that time, fortunately, Williams had already sold the film rights to the play for $400,000, and he looked upon the film as a means of reviving interest and appreciation for what he felt was a funny melodrama that had been misunderstood during its brief stage run. The play tells the story of two half-brothers. Lot, who is renamed Jeb in the movie, is an impotent transvestite with an unhealthy fixation on his dead mother. He is also gravely ill, and fading fast from TB. He lives on his family's crumbling estate with his biracial brother Chicken, who has long been at odds with Lot and is counting the days until he can become the legal executor of the estate. This dynamic is complicated by the introduction of Myrtle, an eccentric southern belle who Lot meets and hastily weds 
on a television game show. Now listen, I'm going to make you my special one time a year happy, happy offer. Now this happy couple who are engaged, you are engaged, aren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm relieved on that because, I mean, it, well, in New Orleans, well, anyways and anywho, in addition to this fully electrified and automated kitchen with 31, count them, 31 appliances worth $4,900 at any quality store like Bamberg's, the Rube Benedict Show is willing to give you our one and only happy couple special, which consists of a round-trip ticket for two, all expenses paid to Hollywood, California. Or a check for $3,500 on condition that you two agree to be married by a genuine minister of the Church of Our Lord next Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. here on the Rube Benedict Show. When Lot brings his new bride home, Chicken realizes it's a play to sabotage his rightful inheritance. What is that woman wearing? My wife wearing my mother's gown. Are you mine? They turn you loose from the hospital? Well, I wasn't locked in hospital, not a gym. No, I was released last, last week. Couldn't do nothing more for you, I guess. Who is this woman? A twisted menage a trois ensues, the impotent Lot unable to fulfill his husbandly duties, while the studly chicken sneaks in and successfully seduces Myrtle. Hanging over it all is the threat of biblical fury in the form of an oncoming flood that threatens to wash it all away. Both Lumet and Vidal had enjoyed previous successes with the works of Williams. A decade earlier, Lumet had directed Marlon Brando in The Fugitive Kind, based on Williams' play Orpheus Descending. Meanwhile, Vidal had adapted the acclaimed Suddenly Last Summer around the same time. But the last of the Mobile hotshots seemed confused and unfocused from the start. Author of Sidney Lumet, A Life, Mara Spiegel. Part of what was happening is um, Tennessee Williams was in this kind of late period that people talk about as, you know, being a very hard time in his life. And one of the things that Sidney said about the film later was that he was, he just couldn't bring himself to, you know, press Tennessee Williams on making more changes. He, he knew what the problems were in it. And I guess what I think is so interesting, if you look at the, original play and and how the adaptation works is that and you know we can hypothesize about this but a lot of the what was daring about the um, sexual and and gender identity stuff in the play and that is that one of the main characters um, (laughs) dies wearing his mother's wedding dress Mm. as a man uh, wearing his mother's wedding dress um, really gets flipped in the movie to address racial issues um, rather than these gender issues um, and this was I mean I you know just biographically he he made this film the same year that he and his wife Gail uh, Lena Horn's daughter Gail Jones um, hosted a fundraiser for the Black Panthers and his own biracial children were beginning to you know come into you know they were getting older and, and he was I think becoming more and more conscious of wanting to address issues of race um, so um, he did a lot of really surprising things I mean in the in the play production 
there's you know these two brother half brothers um and in the play they're both played by white men and one of them is supposed to have some some biracial feature but it's not visible and in the film Sydney cast a black actor and that um you know uh he did a number of things i think that are you know uh um very pointed about black white sexuality and um uh and but the you know and and the sexual issues i mean that are suggested in the play that is even that the brothers had a sexual relationship the, um are kind of left a little bit confusing i mean you're sort of a little bit adrift what are we what's happening mm. here, you know you know it's interesting to me because Tennessee Williams really didn't go into race much and so pushing his his story into that arena um was really interesting rather than dying wearing his mother's wedding dress in the film the character dies wearing a confederate uniform um so again this switch over to to another kind of narrative um and was I, that I think, was that Lumet's direction to to make it more about the racial explorations well i think it was something that he and gore vidal you know came to and i think i i i'm quite confident that lumet um emphasized it uh even potentially more than it was in the in the screenplay with the flashbacks that we get throughout the film um some of which are so clearly um you know about issues of of interracial sex and so forth um but there is a um a lot of a lot of the motivations are left kind of murky you know murkier than than I know that Sydney would would like and so it kind of leaves his actors a little bit um a little bit at a loss and you know there there was a uh two short plays that um that Tennessee Williams put on in 66 um a few years earlier and they were titled slapstick tragedy and um so he seemed to be moving in that <laughs> that's such a strange and interesting term and i feel like this this film gets kind of stuck in that you know mysterious place of slapstick mm. tragedy it i think it's a it's a fascinating piece and i um I think there's more to be learned about it. It should be noted that James Coburn, one of the most masculine of leading man actors at that time, shirked at playing the character of Jeb as a transvestite. But he did make a concession when he agreed to portray him as impotent. But even without the provocation of a leading character being a transvestite, the film generated disapproval from the censors board. The newly formed Motion Pictures Ratings Board cursed the film with an X rating, citing a moment of implied oral sex between the characters of Chicken and Myrtle. But really, this was just one stitch in the fabric of the film's failure to capture an audience. In the years following the film's dismal reception, Williams confided to author Gene Phillips that he was wildly disappointed in Vidal's adaptation of his work. Vidal, meanwhile, placed the lion's share of blame for the film's shortcomings on Lumet, and in his words, the director's hatred and misunderstanding of humor. To some extent, Lumet agreed with this assessment, and understood that if he had a weakness, 
It was in his inability to create convincing light entertainment. One can imagine that he might have set out to atone for some of the changes he made to the film's outlandish perceptions of sexual identity when he directed Dog Day Afternoon five years later. It was seven days, married, widowed, integrated. It was one hell of a week. Released on January 21st, our next film is a modest little romance. Or at least, that was the initial idea. Set in the pulsating neon dreamland of Las Vegas, the only game in town is about two losers adrift. One is an over-the-hill showgirl who's been wasting away in her tiny apartment waiting for her lover, a married man from San Francisco, to leave his family and rescue her. The other is an enthusiastic but perpetually doomed piano player in a dive bar. They meet, argue, and of course, fall in love. A simple theme, a single apartment, a true two-hander. What could possibly go wrong? The town is Las Vegas, and these are the rules of the game. Take Academy Award-winning Elizabeth Taylor as a beautiful loser who always gave more than she got. Take Warren Beatty as a loser with winning ways and a crazy dream of beating the game just once. Some enchanted evening. Give them Academy Award-winning George Stevens as a director in a stage hit by Pulitzer Prize-winning dramatist Frank Gilroy. And you've got a sure winner in the only game in town. If they had been allowed to just do it on the small scale that it really was begging for, I think it would have been so much better. Film historian and longtime creative director at Twilight Time, Julie Kurgo. Frank Gilroy had won the Pulitzer Prize for his... The subject was roses. The subject was roses, yeah. And I think that was like in the mid-60s. And so he had this new play coming on, The Only Game in Town, and um, <laughs> Fox um, just went dashing forward and bought the rights to this play before it had ever opened and paid a lot of money for it. I think it was like a quarter of a million dollars. It was at least a quarter. It might have even been half a million dollars for the rights to this play that hadn't even opened yet. So it opened. It closed, I think, after like 15 performances something like that. So there they were, and they were stuck with this dog. But I don't think it really was a dog. I mean, the writing is charming. The dialogue is really smart. Well, here we are again. (laughs) You don't remember me. Of course I remember you. Where was it? Where was what? I knew it. What are you talking about? Three summers ago, a party at Al Russo's. Who's Al Russo? We got I. You and I. That rhymes. Uh, we left the party, and we wound up back at my place. I've never met you before in my life until last night. Congratulations. There's not many girls in this town remember every guy they've been to bed with. 
What's the matter? What kind of a person are you? The kind that likes to be remembered. George Stevens wanted the only game in town to be a small-scale and intensely intimate film. Stevens was one of the greatest and most accomplished directors of his generation, but his previous film, the biblical epic The Greatest Story Ever Told, was one of the most difficult and draining shoots he had ever experienced. It took five years to complete, and when it finally opened to tepid reviews and lackluster box office, Stevens was understandably deflated. It took him another five years before he committed to the only game in town, and he surely felt that this modest production would be a welcomed palate cleanser. It wasn't. The trouble started with his leading lady, who he had enjoyed fruitful collaborations with previously on A Place in the Sun and Giant. I'm one of the reference librarians, the reference, major reference librarian at the Academy, had this great photo of Liz Taylor sitting on George Stevens' lap during the time they were making Giant. And they were both rather beautiful. Author of Giant, George Stevens, A Life on Film, Marilyn Ann Moss. And then there's a shot of the two of them in the same position when they're making The Only Game in Town. And they're both quite overweight. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the story of what happened. The movie had an enormous budget, $11 million in mm. 1970. That's a huge, huge budget, particularly when you consider this is a two-hander. One of the things that happened was that she was married to um, Richard Burton, who had to film The Staircase, I believe, in France. And she insisted that they make the only game in town in Paris. Makes no sense at all since the film takes place in Las Vegas. George's film is set in Las Vegas, but they built that entire set. But it was in wow. Paris. So it was fake. <laughs> and it had that sense of fakery to it, which is so unlike him. And, and you, could see, so, you could see the models outside oh, of her yeah. apartment window. That's and, and real projection and, you know, it, it's a lot of crazy stuff. And the only thing that makes it bearable is that the cinematographer is Henri Dekai. And this is one of the great cinematographers of Nouvelle Vague. I mean, and particularly he's associated with Jean-Pierre Melville mm. and Louis Malle, Claude Chabrol, Truffaut. He shot 400 Blows. Um, so he was great with doing kind of seedy, underbelly kind of things. I, you know, if he had had more time in Vegas, one can only imagine how great that might have been. And then, you know, there was all the craziness that I think in this period, any movie starring Elizabeth Taylor would provoke craziness, real mm. craziness. You know, she and Burton were probably the two most famous people, certainly the most famous couple of the period, tabloid fodder. And Burton was being a real pig. Pardon me for saying that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But he was. He would come and hang out on the set when she was doing a love scene with Warren Beatty, and he would say things to Warren Beatty. This is documented. He would say things to Warren Beatty. <laughs> Like, oh, Warren, you seem a little uncomfortable. Imagine this in the great Burton voice. You seem a little uncomfortable there with my wife. And 
things like wow. that. Can you imagine trying to do a love scene with that? That being said, how different do you think the only game in town would have been if if the original casting choice of Sinatra had come through? That's that is fascinating thing to contemplate. Um, you know, in some sense, you'd imagine him as being better for the part. Ooh, the Vegas connection, for one thing. I seriously doubt Frank would have allowed the production to move from Vegas to Paris. <laughs> I just think he might have put his foot down. Um, you know, and the fact that he w- he was older and had that kind of, oh, I don't, what can I even say? I was going to say worn out, but I, I don't weariness. Really mean that. Yeah. Weariness. Yes, there you go, Jamie. That's exactly it. He had that weariness, which I think would have worked really well. It would have been a different dynamic, clearly. The way that, that Beatty plays it is, it's, it's actually one of my favorite Warren Beatty performances because he's, you know how sometimes he can be a little like uh, obtuse and a little sleepy and a little, uh, yeah. it's like not quite with us, he, you know, um, even in something like Reds where he's playing an intellectual, he's, he's a little, you want to kind of snap your fingers and go, hello? Are you there? Um, but but um, here he is so lively. He, he's jumpy. You know, he's really, really jumpy. And the other thing that's very interesting is he plays a guy who's like a cocktail pianist. And Beatty was a cocktail pianist. He made money as a cocktail pianist when he was a struggling actor. He really could play the piano. So there's there's one scene in Only Game in Town where – the, the scene opens with hands, beautiful hands, beautiful hands, mm. tenderly caressing the piano keys. And you think, oh, that's nice. Now we're going to have a cut to Warren Beatty. Name a song. First one's in the house. Um, uh, but, but, but not for me. pulls back and it's Beatty playing yeah and he's playing beautifully and he has the beautiful musician's hands so that's a nice little piece of realism which unfortunately poor Liz does not get the benefit of she plays a chorus girl <laughs> a dancer in Vegas and as you know in order to be a chorus girl dancer in Vegas you have to be I think at least 5'8 and at 5'8 you would be tiny and Elizabeth Taylor was five feet tall. They keep cutting from sort of like a like a pretty close, you know, from bust up shot of her kind of smiling vivaciously in costume. And then they cut to a long shot of like anonymous chorus girls. And mm. we're supposed to go, where is she? And qu- then they quickly cut again. <laughs> the only game in town landed with a thud upon release. Maybe it was a matter of perception. Why were two of the biggest movie stars in the world, coupled with one of Hollywood's most respected directors, wasting their energies making a film in such a minor key? But looking back on the film in hindsight, without the baggage and bias of expectations, the movie, at times, is a lovely diversion. Taylor and Beatty's star power is less of a distraction from the simplicity of the premise. 
But that's now. The film did nothing to enhance the careers or the legacies of any of its principal players. George Stevens, the legendary talent who directed classic films like Swing Time, Gunga Din, Woman of the Year, The Diary of Anne Frank, and Shane, ultimately ended his career on a sour note. He never directed another film. He passed away in 1975, and we're left with the speculations of what could have been, had he not been so consumed by the toils and failures of the greatest story ever told. Author, Marilyn Ann Moss. Well, you know, Warren Beatty adored him. Mm. I mean, he was his mentor, just loved him. And they used to go out and eat at a Chinese restaurant every couple of days or every week because he was trying to get him to direct Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, George would always kind of stall. And um, Warren Beatty said of, of the experience, I kind of I came to think of him as a slow-moving freight train because he, was, he wasn't talking. He didn't want to do it. Uh, and he was also uh, asked to direct Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. While his performance in The Only Game in Town is more enjoyable and energetic than is generally remembered, this square, unassuming little film represented a definite step back for Warren Beatty, especially after he electrified American cinema into an exciting new direction just three years earlier with Bonnie and Clyde. One can imagine that Beatty sensed this and knew he had to pursue more daring turf for his next project. Unbeknownst to him, as the only game in town opened and flopped in theaters, his next director was waiting in the wings and would unleash his own revolutionary masterpiece just four days later. Robert Altman was no spring chicken in 1970. He was about to turn 45 when his feature film MASH was released in theaters on January 25th. But he had spent decades working in television, directing shows like Combat and Maverick, and had made a mild impression with his previous feature film, That Cold Day in the Park, in 1969. By 1970, the movies were ready for Robert Altman and he seemed to appear to them fully formed. M.A.S.H. became a sensation. Audiences loved the stinging anti-establishment critiques, his loosey-goosey approach to cinematic norms, his playful manipulation of accepted genre and structure. In the height of the Vietnam War, Altman delivered a comedy with bite and set it against the thinly-veiled backdrop of the Korean War. He encouraged improvisation, 
he made the background actors prominent. He dared to overlap and layer dialogue. These were just a few of the revolutionary acts that made Altman the maverick of 70s cinema. And unlike much of the nihilistic films from the early part of that decade, M.A.S.H. was actually a crowd-pleasing entertainment. I think you'll find these accommodating. They're quite dry. Don't you use olives? We do have to make certain concessions to the war. We're three miles from the front line. This is the story of two indispensable military surgeons. They had the army over a barrel. But did they take advantage of it? Yes. MASH, a motion picture that raises some important moral questions. And then it drops them. What are you two hooligans doing in this hospital? Well, what's the matter with her today? Look, Mother, I want to go to work in one hour. We are the pros from Dover. Somebody get that dirty old man out of this operating theater. And then give me at least one nurse who knows how to work in close without getting her tits in my way. I wonder how a degenerated person like that could have reached a position of responsibility in the Army Medical Corps. He was drafted. The film takes place in a field hospital during wartime. The central characters are two brilliant surgeons, Hawkeye, played by Donald Sutherland, and Trapper John, played by Elliot Gould. But really, the entire ensemble is the star. And what an ensemble it was. Robert Duvall, Sally Kellerman, Michael Murphy, Fred Williamson, Bud Court, Corey Fisher, and Tom Skerritt, the acclaimed actor who first met Altman during his days in television. The studio hated that film, and they wrote it off before it was ever finished. They wanted to fire him and all that, and he's telling me all this stuff. And all this approach to making unorthodox material mm. from based on who you are. Were you aware while you were doing that movie, not only that you were doing something different because I'm thinking about the overlapping dialogue and the unusual structure and setting of the film, but also that you were doing something slightly uh, dangerous. Absolutely. Both dangerous and that we had, we had something really worthwhile. And, and I was only aware of that because of my experiences with Bob Altman. I mean, what he said, the way he did it, his, who he was and how he approached it. So that was very much in, that was all I knew. I didn't have any other frame of reference. So when he started doing this stuff, it just somehow came to me and, and I didn't know quite, he was shooting, it certainly was an unorthodox approach to filmmaking, but I saw it really as his chess game. I know a great chess player when I see it. And this is one of those guys. I said, he's just making some moves. That, I can't explain either. Two weeks before we finished the film, I said to him, I said, we got something, we got something here that I can't explain, but it's something very, very special, Bob. And he said, yeah. It's an approach to filmmaking that I adore because I think today, as complicated as many of the studio movies are, you have to pre-plan so much and you feel like you've made the movie before you've made the movie. But I remember... Uh, an interview years ago with Altman and they were asking him about his upcoming movie that he was about to shoot. And they said, what is it about? And he said, I don't know. I haven't made it yet. There's, there's the, the spontaneity of, dis <laughs> of discovering while you're doing it. But I just love 
Uh, yeah, I think that's a lot of what I feel about what I do. Is I don't know. So how are you going to act it? I guess we'll find out. This business we're in is just taking the risk of possibilities mm-hmm. and not thinking about whether you're going to win or lose or be the best or the worst, but just simply the, the experience of doing it is really, in the end, what it's all about. It's what you learn from it. Mm-hmm. And that's what really I think what I learned most from Altman and from Ashby. They both had different personalities, different approaches, but they were going at it with, I don't know what this is going to, I have no idea how this is going to turn out. <laughs> the studios hate to hear that. Yeah, yeah. One, uh, one of the things about him is he embraces everybody, the cast, they both embraced the cast and the crew, and made them all feel engaged by giving them asking them what they thought about something. What do you think? Is that too hot or is that too cold? And the person, everybody in MASH felt totally engaged. And probably, I remember telling uh, Donald and Elliot, I said, about two weeks before we finished, I said, "Um, we're never going to have another experience like this one. Mm. and uh, they, they didn't really know what to make of that because they saw it differently. They were a little bit more orthodox in, in their approach, and uh, I couldn't explain what I meant by that because you'd have to have spent time with Altman. While Tom Skerritt had previous experience with Altman, Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland did not. It's long been speculated that both actors attempted to get Altman fired from M.A.S.H., though it's a rumor that Gould vehemently denied in later years. It is true that both Gould and Sutherland were a bit mystified by Altman's outside-the-box approach. Why was he spending so much time coaching the extras in a scene? Why the flagrant disregard for what's on the written page? When you consider the time in which it was made, the film was filled with curiosities from the comical recreation of The Last Supper to one of the first, if not the first, mutterings of the word fuck in a studio film, to the intentionally meaningless theme song, right down to the reading of each principal cast member's name over the hospital loudspeaker during the closing credits. Donald Sutherland, Elliot Gould, Tom Skerritt, Sally Kellerman, Robert Duvall, Joanne Flug, Rene Aubergenois, Roger Bowen, Gary Berghoff, David Argan, John Chuck, Fred Williamson, Indus Arthur, Tim Brown, Corey Fisher, Bud Cord, Carl Gottlieb, Don Damon, Tamara Horrocks, Ken Primus, Danny Goldman, Kim Atwood, Michael Murphy, G. Wood, Rick Thielen, and Bobby Troop. Goddamn army. That is all. Actor, Corey Fisher. What Bob liked to do was because he was so interested in creating a world and then going in and filming it almost the way a documentary filmmaker would, he liked to have a whole crew, a stable of actors, this posse kind of, who would, who would inhabit this world and, and know how to uh, contribute to the creation of, of this world without having to be told. Or, or what to do or, or have things written for them. 
So he'd be setting up the scene, uh, say, in, in uh, MASH, where uh, there's an actual written scene between, you know, Hawkeye and Trapper going on. But he then tells three or four of us who are playing other doctors uh, in the tent, say, hanging out, he says, go, go, I want you guys to be talking about how drunk you got the night before mm. and what happened. And so we would go off and kick, kick it around and sort of come up with a loose scenario for some dialogue. You know, he, he'd listen to it and say, great. And then while the, the main scene was going on, he'd have us doing our dialogue in the background. And uh, a lot of it would overlap. And uh, he didn't always shoot in the traditional way of doing a master shot and then close-ups. He would often try to do things in one take with the camera moving. He kind of pioneered what they now call the walk and talk, where the camera keeps moving and actors move in and out of the shot as Mm -hmm. the scene progresses, uh, which is very hard to do. Really requires ensemble work, teamwork between the crew and the actors. Um, it's almost like filming a live event, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's how he liked to do it. So he liked to create many layers of um, activity. Author of Robert Altman, the oral biography, Mitchell Zuckoff. I, I, mean, I remember as a teenager seeing Mash, mm-hmm. and. I remember feeling as though, wow, are we going to get caught? You know, this is just too cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the anarchy, the, the, the anti-establishment, you know, it was like the perfect adolescent boy's, you know, wonder world of what war must be like. First time I saw it, it was really, uh, you know, I saw it on the surface. I saw it as these raucous, rule-breaking surgeons um, who are so good and so cool, and they get all the girls, and... They, you know, they they blow off the brass and they blow off the bureaucracy, and they're just the coolest guys you've ever, you know, seen. Mm. And so that was my adolescent view of it. But yeah. as I got older, I, I I saw it again. I understood. And I, I the thing that really blew me away was when I understood that there was a conscious mind behind this, a director's mind behind mm. this, and that he was commenting on Vietnam through the, you know, by using this sort of ruse of, of Korea. And the idea that he was speaking to so many other things about war movies. I mean, there's, you know, the idea that there's, there's one gun that goes off in MASH, and it's, you know, to end the quarter in the football game. And that's, that's against the rules of, of, of a war movie. Film critic David Sterrett. On, on a really sort of a crude level, you could say, you know, a war is a war. Uh, and so uh, you don't have to be making a movie about the, 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 the war of the moment to be making a comment on the war of the moment. And of course, the war of that moment was Vietnam. Uh, one reason why MASH is about the Korean War may be that it's based on a book, which is about the Korean War. But the Korean War was not that far in the past, you know, from the earlier, earlier part of the 1950s, basically. Uh, so it's not that far in the past. And the Vietnam War was still totally, we were in the middle of everything. 
Uh, nobody knew how it was going to come out. Nobody knew where things were going to go. The anti-war movement was extremely vigorous in 1970, but nobody knew whether it would prevail. So uh, in a way, making a movie about the Korean War was you know, a war that was over and which had its own horrors, as all wars do, was, I think, a way of you know, making a movie about something that, had, that was in a way settled, historically speaking, while using that as a way of comment on what was going on right now, which was not settled, historically speaking. I, I think it was a perfectly defensible decision, if not perhaps an ideal decision. It was about war and about anti, anti-establishment more than anything. Critic Tony Macklin. Everybody was against the it was against authority. They couldn't be trusted, and they didn't know what they were doing. Authority. So I I think that's the that that's what really hit the mark, because we always question authority in different ways. But at that point, boy, it had become it, it was it was not just simmering; it was boiling. It had come to a boil oh. uh, in 1970, and then so. Maybe another time it, it doesn't work. And, and it was so new. It was so fresh. It had originality. This was the sign that new things were really brewing and that we weren't just dealing with an eccentric artist doing an eccentric thing. Nash, in a lot of ways, is a real crowd pleaser, but in some ways it's really eccentric. And the eccentricities did not cancel out the, the crowd pleasing. People loved the movie, and that launched Altman, and it really launched a whole new, or helped to launch a whole new way of thinking about movies, that movies could be offbeat, even strange, and still really attract audiences if they were made, if they were made correctly and if they kind of tuned into exactly the right wavelength. Actress Jane Alexander. You know, the other thing that I, I love about Martin Ritt is he devoted his career to making socially relevant movies. Yes. He wanted to do those kinds of, of films, and God bless them, they were wonderful. Do you remember one called The Molly Maguires? It was about mining. I loved that film. They were Irish. They were Catholic. They were rebels. They're calling themselves The Molly Maguires. <laughs> Uh, the film did not do well. Uh, Ritt was always uh, very, very sad about the fate of the Molly Maguires because I think he felt closer to that film than uh, any of his others. Uh, it was too full of shades of gray to be a successful commercial uh, project. The Molly Maguires was the first of two films that director Martin Ritt made that decade that dealt with labor unions, the second being the extremely popular Norma Ray in 1976. Sadly, this cinematic treatment of one of history's most infamous and violent labor protests went largely unseen by wide audiences upon its release. But it stands proudly alongside Ritt's other films as a work of great ambition. Before we delve into the intricacies of the film, here's a little historical context. Author of Making Sense of the Molly Maguires, Kevin Kinney. Tell me about the Molly Maguires. The Irish that they sent back to the the Pennsylvania area, it was the middle of the Industrial Revolution, and they needed 
they needed workers? Is that what inspired them? They needed labor. Uh, and in the 19th century, the Irish were the chief source of unskilled manual labor, physical brawn, the people who did the, uh, the digging and the heavy lifting. Um, so the anthracite region of Pennsylvania, it's the region that stretches from Scranton in the north down to Pottsville. It's a very distinctive part of the world. It, firstly, it contains most of the world's anthracite. Anthracite is a particular form of coal. It's the purest form of coal. Very valuable commodity in the context of the American Industrial Revolution. It requires labor and plenty of it, and most of that labor is immigrant labor. So what happens is, uh, in that context, um, the mine workers form uh, a trade union, the Working Men's Benevolent Association, which is the largest and most powerful trade union in the country in the late 1860s and early 1870s. What's interesting about that union is that it's open to all workers, skilled and unskilled, Catholic and Protestant, uh, Irish and British. And so it, it unites the working class in one industrial union, which is very powerful. Molly McGuire's is a, a small group, a desperate group. Uh, they consist of the most alienated, least skilled uh, of the Irish, the ones who are most likely to be Irish speakers, to come from the most remote regions of Ireland, the ones who have most difficulty assimilating into, into American life. So you kind of have two... Uh, organizations emerging in parallel and they have different tactics the tactic of the trade union movement is to sit down across the table representatives of labor representatives of capital uh, collective bargaining hammer out an agreement and if, if things are not working the weapon that the union uses is the strike uh, the Molly McGuire's have a very different tactic it's much more direct immediate and individual uh, so what they'll do is if there's a problem in a mine where the Irish are being discriminated against or the Welsh are getting higher pay for the same work, um, they will go directly to the mine boss and deliver a warning. If that warning is ignored, they'll come back to his house and they'll post a piece of paper. They'll nail, nail a piece of paper to the door with uh, a picture of a coffin on it and the words, uh, this will be yours. That's a coffin notice. And ultimately, um, in both Ireland and the United States, the ultimate sanction is they will uh, physically assault or they will kill. Ultimately, the Molly Maguires were convicted of 16 murders and 20 of its members were hanged, thanks in large part to another Irish immigrant, James McParlin a detective who went undercover inside the mines to befriend and root out the Molly Maguires. In the filmed version of this history, Sean Connery plays Jack Kehoe, the leader of the Molly Maguires, and Richard Harris plays Detective McParlin. In their approach to fleshing out the story, the facts and nuances of which are still hotly debated to this day, writ and producer-screenwriter Walter Bernstein were faced with a bit of a moral quagmire. I think in a way they're caught in a bind, right? Because there's an ambiguity there that actually runs through the movie because 
Rate and Bernstein want to condemn the figure of the informant unequivocally, but in no way do they want to endorse, let alone glorify violence. And I guess from a from a motivational standpoint, uh, how could you be embedded with that group of men for so long and not establish yeah. some kind of empathy or rapport with them or identification? Oh, yeah, yeah. And the movie really plays that up. Do you think you really could have won? Well, then why? You know why as much as me? You worked down there. Could you see yourself not lifting a finger? I wouldn't stay down there. I'd get out. And why would you find it different? Why didn't you stop, Jack? I tried to get you to stop. Author of the films of Martin Ritt, Fanfare for the Common Man, Gabriel Miller. McParland, who's the informer on the Molly Maguires, is presented as a fairly attractive character uh, for mo- for much of the film. Uh, he's handsome, he's charismatic, uh, he's charming. Uh, he even comes, even though he's there to spy on the Molly Maguires, uh, he begins to sympathize with them uh, during the, the course of the film. And at the end, he's very, very conflicted on what he wants to do, on what he has to do. And even though he does it, uh, the audience develops a certain amount of sympathy for him. And I think the ending of that movie is uh, very, very brutal uh, in its treatment mm-hmm. of McParlin and its treatment of Keogh, uh, the, the head of the Molly Maguires. And the audience did not know what to make of it. In the climactic scene of the movie, the detective is McParlin. He's played by Richard Harris. He comes to see Sean Connery in his uh, jail cell. But in that scene, there's a confrontation. Keogh says to McParlin, You came for absolution. You're not a priest, Jack. You'd like to be set free from what you've done. I'm not that soft. Oh, you don't want forgiven. You can get that from a woman. Punishment. That's what you want. You think punishment will set you free. And that's why you've come. Looking for punishment. So what he's referring to there is, in Irish culture, um, the most reviled figure is the informant. It's a trope in Irish culture. And mm. uh, um, Keogh saying to Mike Parlin that, you know, you, you want me to forgive you. You want absolution. You even want to do penance for what you've done. And then they fight. And the last line of that scene... You'll never be free. There's no punishment this side of hell can free you from what you did. See you in hell. I mean, I do think that, um, especially that climactic scene, you'll never be free. Um... There's no punishment this side of hell. I mean, it's a dramatization, but it, it surely can, plaus- I think it can be read plausibly in the context of what happened during the blacklist. Fear of communist subversive activities has developed into hysterical frenzy, which grows daily. Appointed by Congress to investigate, Chairman Parnell Thomas opens the hearing. He's investigating alleged communist influence and infiltration in the moving picture industry must not be considered or interpreted as an attack on the industry itself. Martin Ritt was a World War II veteran who had just embarked on his directing career when he was identified 
as harboring communist sympathies by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Ritt was called before the committee and promptly refused to name names. As he told the New York Times in 1979, a rat does that and has to live with it for the rest of his life. Ritt was blacklisted for five long years. Walter Bernstein was an army correspondent during the war. After he was outed by the committee, he was blacklisted for a decade. Ritt and Bernstein were close friends, and at one point, they were even roommates. Creatively, they both shared a commitment to themes of social injustice. The trauma of the blacklist was reflected most explicitly in their 1976 collaboration, The Front. But there's more than a trace of it in other films directed by Ritt as well, including The Molly Maguires. McParlin informs against Kehoe. Um, HUD brings on his father's death, but he doesn't actively kill him, his behavior. You know, but in the Brotherhood, one brother actually kills another brother. Uh, and he's not only a brother, but since his brother raises him after their parents died, he's like a combination brother-father figure, and he kills him. He kills him for the corporate group that asks him to do it. The other th uh, thought I had on this was the notion of guilt by association. Um, so in the Molly Maguire story, the way it's told, um, you have individuals who are accused of murder or conspiracy to murder. But if you can establish that they were members of this organization, the Ancient Order of Hibernians, then in the courtroom, that's taken as evidence of guilt. If you're a member of the Ancient Order of Hibernians, you're a Molly Maguire. If that connection has been made, uh, the, the burden of evidence is heavily against you, uh, and you're going to be convicted. And who's providing that evidence? Uh, the informant, James McParlin, who in that sense is naming names, uh, because if you look at the HUAC investigations, you know, it was enough to say that you were involved in the, the New Deal uh, federal theater project, uh, to have uh, a, a big uh, question mark uh, placed over your head as to your left-leaning sympathy. So again, there's this idea of guilt by association is, is to me, is, is part of it. So, so there's the history of the Molly Maguires in the 19th century, and then there's this kind of interesting political and cultural history of, of filmmaking. We'll continue to explore the political and cultural history of filmmaking in the next episode of Movie Geek Yearbook. Zabriskie Point, where a boy and a girl meet and touch and blow their minds. Here comes a candle to light you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. The family that plays together, slays together. I'm Hercules. So you told me. No man is superior to Hercules. We all see Ohona. Oh, we all see 
We see what happened. Movie Geek Yearbook, Class of 1970, continues with the month of February. Find out more and gain exclusive access to our archive of uncut interviews from this episode by visiting moviegeekyearbook.com.